Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. I want to introduce to you Chris Vines. Um, I don't know how much Chris plans on sharing, but Chris was, uh, Thomas and I are the same age. We moved to, to central Arkansas um, about the same time, and Chris was, I think, literally the first person we met um, in college, and so um, we've, we've kind of grown up with Chris over the last, I don't know, 13 years, um, and we're in different places now, but um, just a, a very dear friend, and so Chris is going to come this morning and um, teach us, um, share from God's Word, and uh, look forward to hearing from him, so come on. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Thank you for, uh, to, to Nathan and Thomas for sharing this very tall pulpit. <laughs> this is what I've been kind of looking forward to because I saw pictures of this thing whenever uh, he just got it, and I was like, man, I'm gonna get to stand behind that and uh, get, to, get to preach. I just hope it's not too tall. So I, I don't know if I, I don't think it fits me quite like it fits Nathan, does it? Thanks. I appreciate that. Well, like Nathan said, my name is Chris. I am from, from Hope, Arkansas. And uh, right here on these two front rows and then right here, this is my family, Carson Elliott, my wife, Sydney. And then I won't say all of their names, but this is um, a, a portion of our group, of our youth group at Garrett Memorial Baptist Church in Hope, uh, where I serve as one of the pastors. And um, pleased to have Christy Johnson. Uh, she is our female sponsor, one of our main female sponsors, apart from my wife. She is our pastor's wife, uh, and she is here this week. And so we are excited to, to join you guys in the, the summer club that's coming up starting tomorrow, right? Okay, I want to make sure my schedule is right, make sure we, we get here at the right time. So yes, looking forward to the summer club with, uh, with you guys. But right now, um, very, very anxious and excited to preach God's word to you. So I want to invite you, um, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. This morning, um, what I intend to, to preach is, I believe, something that is going to be familiar to most everyone in the room. But I don't assume that. I don't assume that everything is familiar. But uh, Essentially, what I purpose to do in my, in my heart and my mind when just coming here is just to preach the gospel, and, and that's what I want to proclaim to you this morning. But one thing that you just need to, to know on the front end is that I'm, I'm the kind of person who asks a lot of questions. I, I do. I ask a ton of questions. Did anybody just a show of hand? Anybody with me? Do you ask a lot of questions as well? Okay, yeah. So the last couple of weeks, um, I, have, I have asked Nathan and Thomas a ton of questions, probably the same question in two or three different ways. And I get that honestly because my mom does the same thing. Um, my mom will often ask me the same question in about five different ways. It's a spiritual gift that she has. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I love my mother and she knows that about herself and I just have inherited my thing is I, I can't ask it in five different ways. I normally ask it in about three different ways. Uh, but I am a question asker and that's something that's been with me since I was... I was young. Uh, I remember being in seventh, eighth grade, and I had a particular teacher who would just, who had just a, a very nasally voice. I just remember her. She was one of my favorite teachers, but she had a very nasally voice, and she would tell me after I'd asked several different questions in a class, she would just say, college is going to eat you alive, Chris Vines. 
because she, she knew that I wasn't gonna be able to ask all my questions in college and that I was just not gonna be able to make it. And that's what she just kept saying, kind of in jest, but I think eventually it became serious on her part. Well, I did make it through college somehow. I still have a lot of questions and I asked a lot of questions. But here's the thing, I, I don't think I'm alone in my question asking. In fact, I think we all ask fairly big questions in our life. Maybe not every day and maybe not every week or every month, but at certain points in our life, we do ask questions. And, and we, we certainly ask questions because we want answers, but we ask God questions. Sometimes we lay in our bed at night and we ask the question, God, are you there? Are you there? And it comes from a, from a feeling that, God, we just don't sense your presence. I don't feel you there. And I need to know, God, are you, are you there? Sometimes we ask God, do you care? We go through times in our life where it's difficult. There are seasons of difficulty and, 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 and grief is real. And, and we wonder at times, God, do, do you care about me? And, and then we get very personal and we, we wonder about the very love of God. God, do you, do you love me? We hear people talk about how God is love and how God does love, but then we still can lay in our bed or sit in our chair or drive down the road and, and wonder at times, God, do you love me? Because I'm not feeling it. I don't, I don't sense it. I need to know. And I think I'm not alone in asking those questions. I think that we all, at some point in our life, we, we ask questions like that. So I want you to, to look at this text with me. Romans chapter five, again, a familiar text, but one that is certainly worth rereading over and over again. Starting in verse six, it says this, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Join me in prayer just one more time, if you will. Father, this is your word, and these are your people. So Holy Spirit, I pray that now you would preach your word to your people. Make it real to us. Make it land in our hearts. Lead us to believe, to trust, and to know your truth. It's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen. As I read this particular verse, I'm reminded of a, of a story that, uh, again, familiar one in the Old Testament. And that is Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Now, here's the good news. We're not gonna be reading all those chapters this morning, okay? We could, and it would be certainly worth our time because God's word is certainly more important than any words that I could come up with. But I know that we're under a little bit of a time constraint. You probably don't wanna just sit there and listen to me read in my Southern accent, Genesis 37 through 50. But it's certainly worth reading in your own time because in, in that particular section of scripture, what we, we have is a very remarkable story. And it's the story of, of Joseph. It's the narrative of Joseph. And maybe you know Joseph um, with the little tagline at the end of his name, Joseph who wore the coat of many colors. He had the coat of many colors. And, and we've, if you've grown up in or around church or summer clubs or anything like that, it's likely that you've at least heard of Joseph and his coat of many colors. And you've probably heard a lot of different stories about um, how, how, how to understand that particular passage of scripture. I'm not gonna go into all the details of, 
of, of everything, but I do want to just in a broad stroke this morning, I just wanna recount with you that story. I like telling stories, I like reading stories, and this is one that is certainly worth reading, telling, and listening to. But as we already know, we know that Joseph was a favored son of his father, and therefore he had a coat of many colors. And he also had brothers, and those brothers didn't like the fact that he was the favored son. And early on in Joseph's life, we have Joseph dreaming. It's very important as we continue to look at the life of Joseph because Joseph didn't just dream once or twice and dreams were a recurring theme in his life. But early on, he had dreams. And these dreams were were kind of disturbing to his brothers and even to his father. And of course, the fact that one of the dreams talked about how his brothers would one day bow down to him Well, that just kind of threw coals on the fire of them not liking Joseph all the more. And so one day his father sends Joseph out to find his brothers, to get a report of where they are. And by the way, I should say this, that, you know, sometimes Joseph is put in a particular light as the the spoiled little brat. Have you ever heard that before? And that may be true. That may be true. But here's the thing. Scripture doesn't really ever give us those words. Right? We just know that he was a favored son. He had a coat of many colors and his brothers didn't like him. And so he goes to find his brothers and here, here, they, here they are seeing him from a long distance off and they say things like this. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. That's, that's how much hatred they had toward their own flesh and blood. And so they make this plan to, to kill him as they come close. But then they change their minds. They're like, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in into a pit. In fact, let's just read this one portion of scripture and see what is going on in their minds. This is in 37, 18 through 25. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. It says, they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will see And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. There's there's just part one of of Joseph's life in terms of his brothers. And again, it's not an unfamiliar story to to most people. But we have right here a, a picture of hatred toward Joseph from his own flesh and blood. And they throw him into a pit. And then I just, I just had to read this at the end because I believe it's telling of just their mindset. It says, and then they sat down to eat. Can you imagine with me? And it's meant to make us feel something. Can you imagine just the, the coldness that would have to exist in the hearts of his brothers at this point to be able to do this very act? Not just, not just against their brother, but against anybody, but then against their own flesh and blood. And Reuben, he seems to be kind of the one who wants to, you know, come out squeaky clean on the end. And I'm not so sure that his motives were not self-serving 
to begin with, that he just wanted to maybe gain favor in his father's sight all the more by rescuing the favored son from the clinches of his, of his evil brothers. But we don't know that because what happens next is an opportunity arose when Reuben wasn't present for them to then sell Joseph into slavery. There were some traders that came by and they sold him. They didn't kill him. They stripped him of his cloak, of his, of his robe, threw him into a waterless pit. By the way, I don't think that would feel good as you fall down. I don't think they just lowered him gently down in there. Okay, I think the fact that they threw him in there is something to just mark that he's probably bloodied up. He's, he's scratched up. I mean, they are not being careful with how they are treating their brother. And yet they sell him to these traders for 20 pieces of silver. And then as, they, as, the, as Joseph is on, their, on his way to Egypt, his brothers have conspired against him and are now on their way back to the father to basically lie about what just happened. That's part one. That's, that's Joseph at the very beginning. And we see that he was stripped of his coat. He was stripped of, of, of more than just the, the garment that he wore, but he was stripped of his, his dignity even, of his honor as the favored son, of his status. You can imagine the humiliation, the shame that would come in an episode like that. You can imagine the painful reality of knowing that the ones that you considered close to you, even though they maybe didn't like you that much, but you never thought that they would do this to you. It's heart-wrenching. And when we hear stories like that, we think, man, is this made up? Is this, is this real? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. This is God's word. This is what we have as truth in front of us. And it should make us, as we sit in our seats this morning, just kind of cringe a little bit to think, man, this is, this is some darkness that really does exist. And we see it on display right here. It should wrench our hearts as we see this story unfold. We see the callous nature of the brothers as they expose their innocent brother to the elements of the pit and then ultimately as they trade him away, as we said, for just 20 pieces of silver. Joseph was stripped, but then in part two, we see that Joseph wasn't just stripped of his cloak and dignity and status and everything that came with being part of a covenant family. He's now stranded in a foreign land. He's stranded in a place that is completely unfamiliar to him. He's first stranded as a slave in Egypt. And, and I always like thinking about this. I don't know the, the full process, but at some point as Joseph, and we don't have this written out, laid out for us in detail in scripture, but at some point as Joseph is, is getting down into Egypt, he, he most certainly is, is thrown on some type of auction block along with, I'm sure, other slaves that would be sold Maybe, maybe it was just him sitting in a cage with all the others. But providentially, a man named Potiphar comes by. Maybe he was the highest bidder in the crowd. Maybe he just came by and, and said, you know, I want that one, I want that one, and I want that one. And he brings Joseph into his house. And, and all of a sudden, we see something that is, again, recurring throughout the story, that Joseph, as he's in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's house begins to prosper. It begins to do really well. And Joseph is, is identified as someone to, to trust and someone that can be set over certain things. And it just also highlights a recurring phrase that we see throughout 
this narrative in Genesis that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. Joseph certainly was remaining faithful to the Lord, but what's made much more of in the text is the fact that God was faithful to him and that God was doing something. In fact, as a reader, it should make us pay attention all the more and be thinking, what's going on here? What's going on here in the, in the big scheme of things, in the big narrative of Scripture and what God is doing? What, what's happening? It should just make our interest peak just a little bit to think. Well, we see as Joseph is in Potiphar's house, he is still a slave, but he's been given certain privileges. But then not too much time passed and he's stranded again after being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And this time, he's thrown back into a pit, this time in shackles and chains, as he's thrown into jail. And he was brought lower. Things were going well, but now all of a sudden, it's like he's hit rock bottom again. Joseph was seemingly abandoned. Again, we have the full story. We get to read these pages of scripture, and we know how this ultimately ends. But in the midst of it, Joseph is is going through the ringer. He feels abandoned. And if we go back to just our questions that we started out with, it's not a far-fetched idea to wonder or to think that Joseph might be asking similar questions. God, do you care for me? God, are you there? God, do you, do you love me? Again, even in the midst of the jail cell, we have the recurring phrase, God was with Joseph. And by the way, that's the narrator telling us that. It wasn't God speaking that directly to Joseph. That's just for our benefit as readers to know that God is doing something. Others in the prison promise to remember Joseph. And so you remember this as he's in the prison, there's a couple of guys who were in Pharaoh's court and they had dreams and when you know it, Joseph was then, by the power of God, to, able to interpret those dreams. One was a good dream. The other guy, not so much. Not a good dream. And they both ended up becoming true. One had his head cut off, and the other one was restored to his place in Pharaoh's court. And that guy promised, Joseph, I'll remember you when I get out of here. But guess what? That promise failed. He didn't remember him. And all the while, this was happening, while Joseph is in the pit, while he's being stranded, while he feels abandoned, while others are forgetting him, God was with Joseph. God's ever-present eye was always on Joseph. God would not allow Joseph to fall. We could read another part of Scripture and and it would ring true in this story that God's righteous right hand was holding him up. God was doing something. Joseph may have been stripped, but he wasn't slaughtered. He may have been stranded, but he wasn't utterly secluded because God was with Joseph. In the midst of being stripped, in the midst of being stranded, Joseph was being overshadowed by what God was doing. And then... Pharaoh had dreams. 
And nobody could interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And at that point, that one man who was down in the pit with Joseph remembered there was a man, a Hebrew, who interpreted my dream. And he gave me a good interpretation. Maybe he's still there and he can interpret your dream, Pharaoh. And so they go back to the pit and it says they found Joseph. And he had been there for quite some time. So they had to shave his face and they had to clean him up, get him presentable to go in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. And here we just get a glimmer of where Joseph's mind and heart is, even in all of this. He says, it's not in me, it's actually in God. And he hears the dreams and Joseph gives him the interpretation. And of course, the interpretation is this, that there's gonna be seven great years in Egypt, but then it's gonna be followed immediately by seven really bad years. There will be a famine and Pharaoh saw fit. In fact, he asked the question, he said, where could we find someone with such the spirit of God in them? And he elevates Joseph to the second in power. And all of a sudden, I mean, this, this, this story is moving fast at this point. Joseph, who was not too long ago, just, just a few short years, sold into slavery, coming from really no man's land when it came to Egypt, and is now in the second in power. And we see Joseph is now seated in a place of, of honor, in a place of power. Now there's a lot going on here and there's a lot that I'm, I'm having to, to leave on the table. I need you to know that throughout the book of Genesis, we have, we have something that we have to pay attention to. And it's, it's God's promise of, of a covenant, of land, and of seed. And we see that throughout. And I can't, I can't go into too much of that because it just would derail what we're trying to accomplish this morning. But I need you to know that in the midst of all of this, this story is really not about Joseph. Joseph's a key player, but it's not all about him. We see that he is stripped, that he's stranded, and that he's now seated in this place of power and honor. Joseph would certainly receive much praise and honor for the work that he performed in Egypt for the next, listen to this, 14 years of his life. He brought amazing wealth and prosperity and glory even to the land of Egypt and to the house of Pharaoh. This is something that God did through Joseph. Joseph was placed in a position of power in order that many others would be saved from death, brought about by the famine in the land. More than that, and this is where the story gets good. This is where we need to lean in. He blazed a trail of life for those who once hated him and wished him dead. In fact, if we skip ahead, Joseph talks to his brothers. They're reunited. There's a lot that went on with that, but they're reunited. Listen to a couple of the things that Joseph said to his brothers after they'd been reunited, after all those years. You can imagine them just quaking in their boots after they see that now this one that they sold for 20 pieces of silver sits in this position of power and authority. What's he gonna say to them? Joseph says this. This is Genesis 45, verse five. And now, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
God sent me before you to preserve life. The, the passage of scripture that was read before we, we sang just a few minutes ago in Psalm 105, if you look down in some of those verses, starting in verse 16, you would see how the psalmist actually recounts this very same truth, that God sent a man before them into Egypt so that life would be preserved. And here Joseph, after all the years that had passed, and after all the, the hurt that had been done to him, he hasn't been holding a grudge. Instead, he's accepting the grace of God in this moment. And he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. Later on in Genesis 50, verses 20 and 21, here's something else he said to his brothers. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people, listen to this, should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So again, this story is not ultimately about Joseph. It's meant to make us think past Joseph. Because the life that's being preserved, yes, there are many people who are having their life physically preserved in the midst of a great famine. But one thing that God is doing is that he is keeping his covenant with his covenant people. That's what we know to be true about God, that God has entered into a covenant with people, not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, but because God decided to. And in entering that covenant, God also plans to keep that covenant. He's not a covenant-breaking God. He's a covenant-keeping God. And in keeping that covenant, he sent Joseph ahead. Now, that word sent is interesting, isn't it? When you think about how Joseph got there. I don't think in the retelling of the story, we would say that his brothers meant good for Joseph. We wouldn't say that, that this is something that they planned out. They said, you know what? We've got it all together. We know what God's gonna do. Let's just go ahead and plan to sell our brother and, and we'll just expedite the process. That, that was not their intentions. Joseph's brother's intentions were evil. They were evil against his brother. And we see that. It makes our heart wrench as we, saw, as we, as we talked about earlier. But what we see throughout all of this is that God is doing something. And I'm gonna sum it up into two, two things. We realize that God is planning something ultimately for his glory and he's purposed it for the good of his people. He's planned it for his glory and he's purposed it for the good of his people. All the times that it seemed like evil had had the upper hand in the midst of the, the story, the narrative of Joseph, God's hand remained perfectly sovereign. You understand that? In the midst of all the shakiness that, that Joseph was experiencing, in the midst of even us as readers, as we recount the story and we wonder, man, what is going on here? God's hand is remaining sovereign in the midst of all of it. All the times when it seemed like evil would have done Joseph in, God had purposed to turn it all on its ugly head for the good of his people. So it makes me question, and I know I'm jumping here, but I think you can make this leap with me. 
makes me question, what else has God planned? What else has God planned for his glory? What else has God purposed for your good, for our good, for the good of his people? And in a statement, it's this, salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And that brings us right back to where we started, where your Bibles are hopefully still open to, Romans chapter five. Look at verse eight with me. We read it, but let's read it again. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God planned the death of Jesus for his glory. You understand that the cross was never plan B, plan C. It wasn't a backup. The whole trajectory of scripture leads to the hill of Calvary. It leads to the cross of Christ. The cross is central to the story and therefore it should be central to our story. And God says it this way, that he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ was planned for the glory of God. Isaiah 53.10 says it this way, yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him? That sounds a lot like Joseph, doesn't it? That God sent Joseph ahead. Why? To preserve life. And now in Isaiah, we have another prophecy. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. What does that mean? It doesn't make sense until we go to the cross and we see what happened at the cross. Acts 2.23, after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension of Christ, here's what was preached. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Only God, listen, listen, lean in right here. Only God can completely turn the cruel intentions of sinful individuals into tools for accomplishing his master plan. Do you see that? This story is not about Joseph. It's meant to point to someone greater. If we were looking in strictly the Old Testament, it would, it would point to the, the next promised seed of Abraham, which in Joseph's family wasn't Joseph, it was Judah so that Judah's life might be preserved in order for the future king of Israel, David, to be born. Why is all this happening? Well, it's not because David was perfect. We know he's an unrighteous man. All of this is pointing forward to Christ. And here we have that it was the will of God to crush Christ. And after it all was done, we have this very clear statement in Acts that he was delivered up Jesus, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Only God can do this. Think of all the evil intentions along the way. In fact, Peter right here, as he's preaching this, he, he says it. You crucified and killed by the hands of not good men, not people with good intentions, lawless men. People who only wanted to kill and destroy the Jewish leaders, they didn't put Christ on the cross because they liked him. 
They killed him because they hated him. They killed him because they didn't believe him. They thought that he was a blasphemer and they called him that. They didn't understand and they didn't believe that he is the very son of God, the Messiah, the promised one. Jesus would tell them that the son of man, referring to himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love the song that we sang because we sang that word ransom, didn't we? Jesus came with a purpose in mind to accomplish a plan that would ultimately glorify the Father in heaven and Christ the Son. Only God can do this. Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers, Satan himself had the darkest of tensions in crucifying Jesus. They stripped him of his clothes. They shamed him publicly. And they even stranded him on the cross. Jesus was falsely accused. He was forgotten by those closest to him. And he was forfeited by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Does any of this sound familiar to you? It's because the story about Joseph is really not about Joseph. It's meant to make us look to Christ. In all of this, though, God receives the glory because who's the mastermind? Who's the planner? Who's the designer in all this? It's God, God alone, because nothing will ever get the upper hand of God. All of this was perfectly planned by the righteous God who loves and wants to save sinners like you and me. Which is why the second truth is so good. That not only did God plan the death of Christ for his glory, but the second is this, that God purposed it for our good. He purposed it for our good. I take you back to Romans 5, 8. Look at it. God shows. He puts on display. He makes it clear. His love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This, this shoots right at the heart of any of our egos, of any of our pride, to think that we are savable because we are just who we are, or because we will do something that is favorable to God, or because we've earned it, because we've deserved it. No, God shows his love for us when? When we were sinners. How does he show his love for us? Christ died for us. Listen, I can make that statement, and I believe it with all my heart, and I've personalized it because it is personal to me. I can rightly say in this verse that God shows his love for me, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. I know that to be true. And I can, I can make this proclamation to you this morning. I can read Romans 5, 8, but the question remains, do you know this? Do you know this? Listen, we're on the downhill slide, but I need you to hear this. This is just so good. There's so much that has to be left on the, on the cutting room floor right now, but I need you to hear this. Joseph's brothers rebelled against their father. They sold their brother and they lied for 20 years about what really happened. 
while they were literally exchanging their brother for money. And even before they conspired to do so, listen, God had made a plan to save them. And he purposed to bring good to their lives. Did you hear that? Now, I believe that. That's hard, that's hard to swallow, though. You mean to tell me, Chris, that, that Joseph's brothers, who had the, the evilest of intentions, in the midst of all of that that they were doing, and even before that, that God had planned to save them? Like, save their physical lives? And the answer is yes. That's because that's what Joseph said at the end. God sent me ahead so that you would live. I read that, I think about that, and here's, here's the evilness, the darkness, the sinfulness of my own heart. Those guys don't deserve it. They don't deserve that. God, why in the world would you try to save those guys? I mean, I can understand maybe trying to save others, but I mean, those guys, they don't deserve that. What kind of love is that? We use words like scandalous to describe it. We use words like unfair, unbelievable. But then those of us who know grace come back to Romans 5, 8, and we realize the power punch that comes when it says, while we were still sinners, God shows his love for us. How? Christ died for us. God didn't plan to save you because you were good. He didn't plan to save you because you would somehow become lovable. He planned to save you because he loves you and because he is good and because he's decided to show mercy and grace in your life. While we and while you would actively conspire to rebel against God in your heart and in your mind and to do so repeatedly, and while you have literally chosen to live in disobedience to him, and even before you ever even were born to think of that, God made a plan to save sinners just like you for his glory. And he purposed it to bring good to our life so that we might know him so that we might be set free from our own evil devices and set free to pursue him and his ways so that we might have a right relationship and the way Paul would continue to talk about in Romans 5 so that we might be reconciled to a right relationship with God. All of this through the death and the resurrection of his son, who is now seated. Jesus Christ is now seated in the place of highest honor and perfect power, who has all authority given to him. This is our Christ. This is the one who, while we were still sinners, died for us. And now he reigns forevermore. And all of those who trust in him, who believe in him, who trust in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, know him to be risen and living and reigning right now. All of those find everlasting life in him that begins right now. It's not something we're just waiting around for. 
Christ is seated, he is reigning, he is ruling at this very moment. We gather on a day like today to celebrate that resurrection, to celebrate what Christ has done and to proclaim once more, even after a long week that is filled with ups and downs, to proclaim once more, yes, I still believe this. Yes, he is my king. And you link arms with people who are sitting next to you and across the aisle and are in this room. And you say, what? I'm not alone. Because while Romans 5, 8 is a very personal verse and can be personalized, it's also one that is using the word us and we. And as a church, you get to proclaim, while we were still sinners, our king died for us. How do I know when I'm laying on my bed at night and the feelings just aren't there that God cares for me? I look to the cross. I look to the cross. At the cross, you see the great love of God towards sinners like you and me. What do I do when, when I feel like I've, I've gone past the point of no return, when it seems like God isn't there? I go to the cross because it's there that I see the great plan of God purposed for his glory and for my good. What do I do when, whenever I think that, that everything that's going on in my life is way off course. This isn't how I planned it, God. Are you sure you've got this under control? It seems like things are just out of control. God, don't we need to do some kind of course correct here? Are you there? What do you do? Romans 5, 8. We go to the cross because it's there that we see the great wisdom of God turning the ugliness of sin and the devices of the enemy into instruments that would accomplish his perfect will. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. You can trust him. Now I know when I say those words, you may say, Chris, I, you, you don't know what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. And I probably never will. I don't know you people. I love you, though. I don't, I don't know you. And you're not going to start sharing with me all the things of your life? No, I, I don't know all the details of your life. But I know this, that while we were still sinners, that's when God showed his love for us. And whatever it is you are going through, the truth is this. You go to the cross, and it's there you see the grace of God. It's there that you see the mercy of God flowing to your account through Jesus Christ. It's there you see the very love of God displayed for you. I don't feel it, Chris. You don't have to. Not right now. You see it and you believe it. Am I saying that you won't ever feel it? That's not what I'm saying. That's another conversation, but here's what I am saying. You believe it. You see it to be true. You say, God, I may not feel it right now, but I know this is who you are. You've showed it to me over and over again. And so in the midst of not feeling something, in the midst of not understanding something, God, I trust you. I trust you. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. An old hymn writer once wrote this verse of a hymn. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Some of you guys I know need God to make it plain. You want God to make it plain. 
I can't tell you when that would happen or if that would happen, but I know that it, in some time, whether it be in this life or the one that we get to enjoy for all eternity, God will make it plain. But in the moment, in the midst of it, we trust his righteous right hand. We trust his perfect plan. And we trust his purposes for his people, which are good. Later in Romans, and I'm gonna finish with this, Paul would say a verse that we, I think, often quote. And I'll admit to you that I've often gotten wrong. But he says this, that we know, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, all things work together for good. Isn't that an amazing verse? Here's where I've often gotten it wrong. I've put myself in the place of getting to define what good is. And here's what I often do whenever I'm in that place. I define good as just getting me out of whatever uncomfortable situation I'm in as fast as possible. But listen to me. That's not always what God has decreed as good. And I know that's hard to hear. But the point of that is this, that in the midst of whatever it is, whether it's joyful or whether it's painful, as followers of Christ, we trust the Lord. And we trust that his good is actually coming in the next verse, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So church, be encouraged this morning. This morning. God knows what he's doing. He's planned it before we were ever even thought of. He's purposed it for the good of his people. He loves sinners like you and me. And he's put that on display on the cross. And you can trust him. No matter what season of life you're in, you can trust him. Because he's good. And he always will be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your character, the goodness of your word. We thank you for the truth that we find and that we are constantly drawn back to on a regular basis. So many times we want answers to our questions because we have them. And if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we get frustrated because we don't get the answers that we want. Would you, by your grace, lead us in this moment to just simply trust you, to trust your faithfulness to your people, to trust the plan that you have been unfolding, to trust your purposes and that they're for the good of your people and that the good that we get to rightly expect is always conformity to the image of Christ? Would we have this mind about ourselves? And for these people who are sitting in front of me, Lord, I pray that you would help them just to know that you who started a good work in them will see it through to completion. You're faithful. You're good. We trust you. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.